You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show, and I'm super pumped about this because this is the first intro that I am doing from our motorhome. We officially got it moved in, got my podcast stuff set up, and we are about to hit the road. From the time that this episode airs, it's going to be like two days, and then we're going to be on the road full time, so look out Rocky Mountains and Pacific Northwest and Southwest and everywhere out there man i'm it's happening and it's weird that it's happening um in fact i'm about to have to move this big beast real quick we're at a campground and i've got to move it to a different spot because this spot apparently was reserved before we got it and i don't know shenanigans anyways enough about the rv i'm excited about today's episode i've got my buddy brian krebs on brian has a line of beard oils called Bull Elk Beard Oils. They just came out with beard balms. And he's got the Two Bucks podcast. It's all about entrepreneurs in the outdoor space. And so I'm super excited, man. We've been we've been buddies for, geez, quite a while now, I feel like. Uh, and we've got a pretty similar Western hunting journey or story, history, however you want to put that. But I'm going to pick his brain on what hunting the West has looked like for him so far, what he's got planned this year, and it should be a great episode. So let's jump right in. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is my buddy, Brian Krebs. Brian, what's going on, man? Hey, not much. Doing good. Sitting in Iowa this week for work and... Excited to be on the show. Do you have your spotter out there with you? I left it at home in my truck. Oh my gosh, dude, you're in Iowa, man. You could just go park on any dirt road and see probably really nice deer. Yeah. And I'm also in like 
I, I think it's a stretch to call it Northeast Iowa, but that's about the closest to where I am. Maybe just oh, Eastern okay. Iowa. But yeah, there's some really good deer. I was shed hunting down here when I came for work this spring. And it it the way it worked out is I got down here in February, no, late January, and I was doing some scouting. There's some really good publics around the office. And so I was seeing great deer signs, standing food plots. I saw some bucks that were still holding that I would have shot like 140 inch 10 pointers at 60 yards just in a sorghum field. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be amazing. Well, then the way it worked out with work and my other shed hunting. I didn't get back down here until like early May and, you know, early May in Iowa is different than early May in North Dakota. And so I'm like, Oh, there's not going to be anything. It's going to be picked dry. Well, sure enough, I still found a few, so that's good. Yeah. But I just made a conscious decision to, to leave the spotter at home and, and bring the podcast gear instead and uh, focus on that this time. I'll be back in September. So what are you going to do? Well, actually, before we get into all that, why don't you tell the listeners for those who don't know who you are if they haven't listened to you on the nomadic outdoorsman or they haven't gone and already listened to your first episode uh why don't you share with them a little bit about yourself and the outdoor programs that you've got going on yeah so um i grew up in minnesota central minnesota with a pretty traditional hunting and fishing family you know we were part of the orange army we'd go to canada every spring and and that got me into it. And then when I went to college in North Dakota, I started looking west more. And then I started going west. I got drawn for a great elk tag out in western North Dakota. And through that whole process, I was kind of thinking about like ways that I could do this more as a part of my life instead of just, you know, work in the cubicle for 40 years and get my gold watch and then finally be able to like live in the outdoors. And so I started a, a beard brand or a beard oil company called Bull Elk Beard Oil which I named it that way after I shot my bull in North Dakota, just that whole process. And I was struggling with what to name a company anyway. And, and then it just kind of clicked and I was, I ran with it. And so I started bull elk beard oil and that was about two and a half years ago. And through that process, I've learned a ton, right. And I kept my day job. So it's kind of been a balancing act, but just how to learn how to be efficient, learn how to develop new skills, how to make websites, how to brand and market, how to fulfill orders, you know, shipping labels and, and shipping sizes of boxes and weights and just dealing with everything that it takes to do not only a business, but a, a product fulfillment business. And then that leads into what I'm doing now is just starting a podcast. The two bucks podcast is just a podcast that's really meant for anyone that was like me or like you that wants to do more in the outdoors and, and build their own brand instead of working for someone else. And just a learning experience, share all the tips and tricks, share the lessons learned here from other outdoor entrepreneurs on what they've done to build their business, how they got into it, the things they would have done or told themselves if they could go back in time, just to share all that for other people. So other people can um, shorten the learning curve. Man, that's awesome. And I think it's really sweet, one, that you're taking all that information because when you go through this stuff, I mean you learn a ton about it, but you can also help other people avoid the same downfalls or the same roadblocks that you've encountered. And then to get a whole network or a community of people through the podcast together that are doing the same thing, you know, like you're going to talk to people who are farther along in their entrepreneurship than you are. You're going to talk to people who you're farther along and it's going to be, I feel like it's going to be beneficial to everybody, especially Dude, that's one of, honestly, 
that's one of the number one questions that I get is how was it quitting your job and becoming a podcast and social media guy? Like I'm sick of my job. I want to do something else. How do I go about it? And I'm like, man, that's really interesting as a podcaster. How many people are like, Hey, how did you do this? And part of it is me sharing the story and the journey on social media. So they understand kind of how it all came about, but people wanting tips and tricks of how they can do the same thing. Yeah. As a part of kind of my launch strategy with the podcast, I've been recording my screen on my computer of every step along the way, how to build a website, how to get an RSS feed, how to hook up your roadcaster, how to do all this stuff. I've been recording videos and then I'm going to add the voice overlay. I'm going to speed it up because it's take some time. But, you know, I'm going to use all that as just free content for people to see, like, just how easy it really is. And, yeah, when I'm making these videos, I'm making sure I know how to do it myself first. So that way it's more of a flawless video. You know, I'm not stopping and starting and then going back a couple steps and learning along the way. I'll learn ahead of time and then share it. But, you know, the first time I built my Bull Elk Beard Oil website, it took me First of all, it probably took me two or three weeks just to feel comfortable with doing it. You know, all the self-doubt. I'm like, I can't do this. I don't know how to write HTML code. I don't know how to do CSS programming. So, okay, it's probably not that bad. You start YouTubing stuff. You start looking it up. All right, now you pull the trigger. You you know, you you bring your credit card out. You sign up and you start doing it and you learn and you learn and you learn. And then you have to, you know, it's so many iterations. It probably took me two months to build my website. I could probably build a website that's functional now for somebody else in two days instead of two months, just because I did it one time and anybody else could do it too, for that matter. But you know, what I want to do is help that other person do it in two days rather than two months. I want to help them move faster and not, you know, hit the roadblocks and the hiccups along the way that I hit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that information is invaluable to somebody starting out because they're talking to somebody who actually has done it. And I look at it with me. I mean, I could have saved myself time sitting there ordering, looking at YouTube reviews or sorry, Amazon reviews of which microphone to get. And like, is this the right microphone for my podcast? How about these microphone arms? Like I tried to get all the best reviewed, but lowest price items out there. And a couple of them I shot myself in the foot with, like I used to have microphone arms that would literally like, just collapse in the middle of me talking there were so many times early on when i sucked at editing where all of a sudden i would just hear like boom in the middle of it because the microphone just fell onto the table and even really simple things like hey avoid this product can really make a difference for people yeah see i went with the opposite strategy i just went to your amazon list and bought what you had nice and then I, I did think I got a different arm than you. I think you had switched to your really nice arm by that point. And I was like, I don't think I need to go quite to that level. And I dropped down a step. But other than that, I just bought everything that you said works. And I was like, well, if it works for Dan, it's going to work for me. If I can produce the same quality he can do, I'll be more than happy. Like, I'm not shooting that high. <laughs> That's hilarious because I'm it's it's funny hearing people talk about this because you are you are one of maybe a half a dozen to a dozen people that have now started podcasts and some of them are about hunting some are about fishing some i mean are about business and entrepreneurship in the outdoor space and uh it's just really interesting how many people are like 
yeah, dude. All right. So I've got the setup. It's in the mail. Like you want to get on a call and help me set it up? Sure. Absolutely. Let's do it. And now like going back and being a guest on other people's podcasts, I'm like, I had never been on a podcast in my life. I started my own. And now I feel like I do as many guest appearances on other people's podcasts as I record my own. Yeah. You're really building a community. And that's one of the things eventually I would like to do with two bucks is build a community of entrepreneurs. Obviously, you know, it's, there's three verticals, products, services, and content, you know, you're in the content business. I'm in the product business. And then I joined the content business, but just to develop an entire community of everybody and then help leverage everyone else's skills and experiences and places, you know, the, the people that are in the content business need to create content. The people in the product business need to share their products. If they team up and do a podcast together, everybody wins. Same with the products and services, you know, guides need clients, but they also need gear. Product companies need to sell gear. They could team up and everybody wins again. So I'd love to build some type of like two bucks mastermind group that, you know, just anyone that's, you know, obviously vetted that you actually do run your own thing. You don't have to do it full time, but you're actually, you're not just trying to get the perks without a little blood, sweat and tears. I'd love to build a community like that and just help everybody keep growing in the outdoor industry. Otherwise, you know, what we've seen in the last few years is a few entities just really gobbling up a lot of the industry. Um, You've seen the rapid expansion of HME and SME. They're all part of, um, you know, one big conglomeration of all these different brands that they've bought up. And that's not bad, but you're going to start seeing more and more of that. And it's, you know, I'm a kind of a grassroots guy. I like promoting the underdog. So I'd love to see more people start their own business and become successful than just, you know, see the guy that's already winning, keep winning more. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think it'd be really cool, like you said, to build that community, to have that network of people. And I've talked about doing, uh, I've talked about doing like this get together where we almost do a total archery challenge type of deal. And I think a lot of people are doing that in the outdoor space now when they go and do these events or like put on festivals, they have some type of some form of that going on. But I'm like, dude, it'd be fun to just do this giant like game feast, get a bunch of people in the podcast world, in the outdoor space together and just hang out. And I feel like that would be a cool area to pitch like that idea where it's like, hey, guys, we're going to get together. We're all going to scratch each other's backs. You know, like I'm going to I'm going to help pitch your product. You're going to help sponsor the podcast. You're going to help provide these services for land management or restoration or improvement or whatever. You know, like the the outdoor community could greatly benefit itself by just helping each other. Oh, yeah. From what I've seen already, people that are in, you know, business or entrepreneur, people that are doing their own whatever it is, their own podcast, their own company, their own brand, love talking about growth and entrepreneurship and business, what works, what doesn't work all these tips and tactics, it just like, it seems like the conversation naturally gravitates towards those topics anyway, when we all get together. So it'd almost be like, Hey guys, as much fun as you're having this weekend, like, let's just do this more often. And you know, somebody will bring some elk burgers. I'll start a fire, bring a couple of cases of beer and just talk about whatever's going on. You know, what, what's working for you, what's not working for you. You know, how are you feeling about your brand and your business and, and just, whatever cool things grow out of that and stem out of that that'd be all it is it's like we're already going to talk about it all we got to do is get the people in the same room yeah 
No, that's great, man. I love it. I think it'd be a lot of fun to put something on that, that kind of centers around that. And on that same note of helping each other, helping other people out, helping people out who aren't as far into it as you are, you and I kind of have a similar Western hunting experience so far, right? We both grew up kind of in the Northern States. You were right next door in Minnesota. I was in Wisconsin doing the whole outdoor gig, but then having a desire to explore and do more going after things like mule deer and elk and chasing them in places like the Rocky mountains instead of, you know, in these giant corn hill fields with oak trees and sitting in a tree stand. Uh, I'm sure I could have said that more eloquently, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, why don't, why don't we kind of turn the page on this podcast and work through kind of your progression from hunting the Midwest to working your way out farther West and what that looked like. And hopefully there's people who, you know, are a couple of years behind us that are going to go, man, I can do this. If these guys can do it, so can I. Yeah. It really started out small. Um, growing up, my family was really big into like firearm deer season and pheasant hunting. Those were our two fall activities. Um, we've been very active in pheasants forever my entire life. So that one has been most, you know, probably spent a lot more time pheasant hunting than deer hunting just because deer hunting in firearm season is pretty short in Minnesota. And so we would start going out west pheasant hunting. You know, we'd go to western North Dakota, eastern Montana, usually like five days, like a one five-day trip each year. And that was a lot of my early childhood. I remember all the way back to, you know, I was waiting for the school bus on a Monday morning while my dad and my brother were loading up the dogs and the trucks to go out to the Dakotas pheasant hunting for a week and just feeling like excited that they're going yet super, super bummed that I'm not going. And just like that, that passion for like one day, that's going to be me one day I'm going to go. Um, funny enough, I, I distinctly remember like at the bus stop, looking back towards the house, they're all loading stuff up. It's the final box into the truck. My brother goes to lift the tailgate and out of the corner of his eye, his, dog comes flying down the driveway like it's going to jump into the box of the truck like let's go and he shuts the tailgate and the dog just boom right into the closed tailgate it was like oh what just happened um yeah so that was pretty funny dog was fine didn't really hurt the dog at all and they you know went off without me and i had to go to school which really sucked Um, dude that's that's how we started yeah we started doing that and then um you know people get busy my brother had some kids. I started varsity football and the, the yearly pheasant hunt kind of dropped off. The pheasant hunting got really good where we were. So we quit going out West. And then that stemmed into my dad and my brother did a, a couple of really nice um, guided elk hunts in the West with rifles. And, you know, same thing. I was super excited to go and, you know, I was going on the pheasant hunts by that point, but I wasn't quite to the, you know, the guided elk hunt level yet. And so I had had to sit back again. And so just refired up all of that energy and passion to finally one day go. And I had to sit out on a lot of elk hunts um, through high school and college. My brother shot a nice bull with his bow on a trip that I was thinking I could make work, but decided last minute, you know, last minute in the application season to not apply because I was in college. And I didn't know if I could miss that much time at the beginning of a semester and still get done with what I needed to get done. And so finally... I graduated college, went on the first archery elk hunt, loved it, had a terrible hunt. Um, 
it rained. We had nasty, nasty country, northwest Montana, up by the Idaho panhandle. We got into some bulls, but we didn't see many elk. Like, we got close bugling. Um, one of our people fired an arrow, uh, didn't recover it. That elk was fine. We saw it later in the hunt. We got, like, four or five bulls with an archery range, but we didn't get, get any good shots. It was just like a rainforest almost, not quite as bad as, like, Sitka, Alaska or, or – um, Washington, but it was just gnarly country. So we decided, let's do it again. Let's do it every year, but not there. So then we went to Wyoming. My brother shot a bull. We've gone to Montana, shot a couple bulls, and now we just do this archery elk hunt every year. And so that's what really got us looking west. Me personally, it was getting in on the archery elk hunting group really expanded my horizon to then, you know, last couple of years, I've been applying for mule deer tags and antelope tags and West River whitetail tags um i've done a couple rifle elk hunts and so it, it really now it's just how much can i get in with a fixed amount of vacation and a fixed budget and make the most of it yeah that's cool i mean it i feel like one easy way for people to get into it is to kind of go in with other people like that like you go out you figure it out you have a great time and even if you don't walk away successful you're going to learn a lot and figure out what you need to change for the next season um, I also think that, I mean, I'm similar to you. I used to watch my family. They wouldn't go on big trips, but they would just go sit out in the woods during rifle season. And I had three older sisters. Every one of them hunted at one point or another, uh, typically right at age 12, they were out in the woods, you know, sitting with my mom or my dad. And I just had to sit there and like everybody would leave except me and my younger brother and a babysitter or, you know, my cousins. And we just sit there and watch everybody else go out. But that gave me such a desire to do it. And it was just like, dude, I want to go. I can't wait to go. I can't wait to go. And then as I got closer, it was like, you can come sit. You can't hunt, but you can come sit with us. Um, and I can't even imagine what that would be like for an, a Western trip, like watching them go out on their own and you're stuck back playing football or going to school. Yeah, I missed two elk hunts with that archery group. The first one, I, I was in college, so I didn't go at all. And then the second one, I had to miss the archery group because I we, we had a too big of a group to apply with one. So we had, you know, party size was six and we had seven. And I also had a bunch of points in Colorado at the time. They gave me a whole bunch of extra points for some reason. I, I still don't know why, but I applied for one point and I ended up with five. And so I told them, like, hey, we're already a person over. I'll just back out. I have a wedding that weekend anyway, and I'm in the wedding. So I really feel kind of, you know, it's, that's a tough spot to be in. And I'll just go to Colorado, burn my five points. Cause that's really where the good hunting starts is at five points. And it's a big step to get any past that you got to get to like 12 points. So I was like, I'll just step out. I'll go to Colorado. Both times I stepped out of the archery elk hunting group. My brother shot great bulls with his bow. Um, you know, one time I was in, I was in a physics class test. And my phone goes off. It was my brother's birthday, and it was just a picture of a six-by-six six bull. Oh, my gosh. Second time, we were literally minutes from walking down the aisle at my buddy's wedding. Phone goes off. My brother and a six-by-six six bull. Oh, my. Dude, first of all, you need to ditch that friend who got married during hunting season. Who does that? Yeah, I, I don't do that. 
right? <laughs> Abby, I, Abby and I got engaged and we started talking about when we wanted to get married. And she had a, you know, she obviously knew going in that I wasn't going to be a fan of a fall wedding, but she's like, you know, what months? And I'm like, if it's not in September to December, I'll, it's fine with me. And she's like, well, I've always wanted a January wedding. And I'm like, great, done. Perfect. Book it. <laughs> Yeah, but when it's other people, it's it's hard because not obviously not everyone hunts like I do, and it's their big day. Like they're only gonna have one of these big days. I hunt a lot, so I'm really like I'm the kind of guy that's like, yeah, I love to hunt, but if it's your big day and you invite me to be a groomsman, I'll probably set down what I'm gonna do to go to your day. Now, if you're just gonna invite me to the wedding and I'm kind of you know distant friends or extended relation, I probably won't go. Like this year, I'm missing a wedding to go out elk hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell my family, I'm like, listen, don't do it. Like it's a really bad idea. And most of my family understands because not only my immediate family, but my extended family, a lot of them hunt. And so it's like, dude, you don't get married. You definitely don't get married in November. Like that's just a no go. Uh, September for them doesn't really matter, but it's begin, it's becoming more of an importance to me to be around for September, you know? Beginner oh yeah archery season like those first few days man there's nothing like it it's like oh i'm back like i've got months of this to look forward to and especially if you hunt whitetails on private land and you can either you got good egg fields you got a soybean rotation or you got some good food plots that are starting to come into the right growth and they're palatable that opening week is probably one of your best chances at shooting a target buck because you can have them patterned. They're probably sticking to the pattern. If they're, you know, if you have good pressure and you get good access, they're probably using your plots during daylight hours. Um, it's probably one of your best bets. You know, that opening week, once it starts uh, getting closer to October, it seems like, you know, in my experience, your sightings are dipping down a little bit in the middle part of October until they start getting excited for the rut. And then once the rut happens, who knows, you know what, there is no more pattern, right? You just got to be in the stand. Yeah. What, uh, what does that look like for you? Not only, you know, obviously there's personal conflicts, whether it be weddings or, or whatever that you have to be a part of, but to give up some of your archery season, there in minnesota or before that in the dakotas to go out west i mean was that a struggle for you at first to to not necessarily be around for the full season because you're going out of state and hunting something else not a struggle because it's like trading up right it's like are you bummed out that you're not getting to uh you know you know drive your your beater car when you get to rent out like a brand new diesel you know, no, I'm not, I'm not bummed. Um, that's how elk hunting, archery elk hunting feels like to me. I would trade that up any day, especially private land. Cause it's there. Right. And everyone that hunts, it's coming with me out West. So, um, yeah, it doesn't, that one doesn't bother me too much. What bothers me is when I get home and I pull my cameras and one of my target bucks was actually hitting the food plots and, and, and patternable that I would have, you know, looking back, obviously hindsight's 2020, but I've had big bucks. My brother shot 149 in shape pointer one year that we were patterning. And he was, you know, every single night at about 6 PM, 6 30 PM, he was walking right across one of our clover plots. I had a stand in it and he was going out to the beans. And so then you could say like, okay, 
yeah, I should have hunted the plot one night because he was there that night. Well, he was there every night. So you would have made the, you know, the decision like, hey, I need to hunt this plot. And then you probably yeah. would have killed him. So that one got me. Um, and then my brother ended up shooting him. So I think the moral of the story is just hunt wherever my brother hunts. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is a big hesitation for people. Like, what am I going to miss by going and doing this hunt? For me, it, it's the same thing. I feel like I'm trading up. But man, I am missing out. And it used to be where I would miss like the last week of October, right? I would miss archery hunting the last week of October, which is when things start to pick up. Lately, the issue is it's bleeding into the beginning of November as well. So like this year, it I think it's like the 27th or 28th through like the 5th of November that my uh, rifle elk hunt is. And so I'm missing the dates that historically have been the best for me. I think there was like a three year period where we shot four bucks on the exact same day each year. And I'm missing those days now because I'm going out West to hunt. Some people are like, dude, never, I would never do it, but I just love elk hunting that much. And I love going and hanging out with that group of guys. Yeah, that one would be, that would be tougher. Cause you're not only giving up, you know, deer hunting, you're giving up your favorite part of deer hunting and then likely with your favorite people. Um, right. Cause I, I know you have a friend group that does the elk and then your family group is back in Wisconsin. So you, you know, you're not only trading the hunt, you're trading your tradition, you're trading, you know, friends versus family that gets to be a little bit more complicated. Fortunately for me, I've been able to navigate that and never miss, you know, my family's traditional deer hunt. I've come back from Colorado with an elk. Well, I've, you know, to back up another step, I've gone out to Wyoming for five days. I sh mule deer hunt while my nephews and brother antelope hunt, shoot my mule deer, come home, was home for three days, gone back out to Colorado, was out there for seven days, shot an elk, came back. That weekend was the gun season for Minnesota Firearm. Did that. I stayed home and worked from my parents' house all week. So I hunted almost every evening. And then the day that ended, I drove out um, to North Dakota and did my Western whitetail hunt. So it, that year was crazy. Dude, those are the best years. And it's tough to, I mean, you look at it and you're like, was that a fluke? Like, could I top that ever? Am I ever going to beat that? I had one year like that. And it was, my goal was to shoot three different species of deer, right? I had, my first hunt was going to be in Alaska. And then I was going to be doing a, well, I had Missouri and Wisconsin seasons for whitetail, but then my Colorado elk season, I also had a buck tag uh, for mule deer. And it was the same type of thing, dude. I went up first day, first day of season up on the mountain in Alaska, shoot a blacktail deer. And I'm like, first of all, this is an accomplishment. And if nothing else comes from this season, I'm still going to be pretty happy. I get down to Missouri and I shoot a buck with my bow. Then I go out to Colorado, shoot a buck and a bull on the same day with my rifle. And then I come back and I shoot a buck with my rifle in Missouri. And I was like, oh my gosh, do I give up hunting? Like, do I just quit right now? Because I don't think I'll ever top this. Yeah, that's an insane run. I have had some pretty good runs. I don't think I've added anything that good. Um, 
But yeah, it's some it seems like some seasons are just you're on a roll and nothing can go wrong. And then other seasons, it's like, man, did I forget how to hunt? <laughs> um, for two years in a row, I shot a bull elk, a white-tailed buck, a mule deer buck, and two does. And, you know, it felt like I couldn't do any wrong. Then this last year, didn't shoot an elk, didn't shoot a white-tailed buck. I was lucky enough and shot a mule deer buck. But that was a grind, you know, and then I got, I got, did get a couple does, but it, it felt like a much different season for putting in the same number of work. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I had, I had one of those seasons last year where it just didn't seem like anything could come together. I, I just kept failing over and over and over in the encounters I would have with deer. It was like, there's nothing I could do to get them closer. It's not that, that they would blow out of there. I wouldn't like blow up my spot but it was just really random encounters where I'd see them for like a second at 300 yards, even though I've had them on trail camera crossing the fence in this exact spot every single day. And then I ran into the same issue where I went out West to hunt. And the day that I left, when I got back, I checked my trail camera and my number one target buck on my home property was underneath my stand, literally five feet from the base of my tree stand. <laughs> no, <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. And so last year was one of those years that was rough, but I'm hoping that everything turns around again this year. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're the same as me, but when I get a really good tag, especially for elk, I've drawn, I drew one tag that was once in a lifetime and I drew another one that was really, really good. And on those tags, the better the tag was, the, the more negative I thought. So mm -hmm. like, for example, the North Dakota tag, it's less than 1% draw odds. It's once in a lifetime. The average success rate is 54%. But that's, you know, there's an asterisk there, and that's 54%. But a lot of the people waited 40 years to draw. So they're not in peak shape. They're older. They might, they probably haven't elk hunted before because North Dakota is not a big elk hunting state. And so 54% of rookies are shooting bulls. That's insane. Yeah. But then I would tell myself like, well, what if I don't do it? What if I'm that one person that's in peak shape, um, has elk hunted every year for the last five years, spends 16 days out there scouting and doesn't shoot a bull, you know, just super negative. Same with Colorado, drew a really great tag, second rifle. The weather was perfect. I was seeing elk and I'm just like, man, what if I don't get to pull this together? What if I don't? And then on the flip side, like this season, I got an archery elk tag from Montana. I'm like, there's no way I can't shoot an elk. Like it's going to happen. I, there's no way I am going to come home without an elk. Guys, I can't believe it, but we are one month away from season openers all across the country. And if you're like me, you're finalizing your gear list, getting last minute preparations set in place. And a few things that you cannot forget are a good rangefinder and a good set of binoculars or best of both worlds, the two combined into one. Vortex offers their line of Fury binoculars with range finding capabilities and applied ballistics built right in. I'll have mine around my neck from the mountains of Utah to the north woods of Wisconsin in every trip in between. So if you're ready to get serious about your last minute prep to increase your odds this fall, check out what's new from Vortex at vortexoptics.com and head to your favorite Vortex dealer to make sure you're ready for everything fall can throw at you. Yeah, it's it's weird. I feel like the 
the ones that you wait for, the ones that seem like they're going to be better, you just don't want to be that one that screws up or you don't want to be the one that walks away from it. Or it's like, dude, I've been saving all this time for it. What if it doesn't happen? I think about that with moose hunting because I really want to moose hunt. I mean, I want to moose hunt in Alaska, but Colorado I've been putting in and I keep trying to draw my moose tag every year. Well, that's like a once in a lifetime deal. I mean, you can get a cow tag after that, but I'm like, if I don't shoot one, I'm never going to get to hunt a bull moose in Colorado again. Like that would suck so bad. Yeah. Same. Is it possible? Like, am I going to do it? Like, we thought that for my buddy Sean, and then he shoots one 15 minutes out into opening day. But I just, I definitely feel that with the, with the hunts that seem more important, that seem like you have better chance, you definitely get more negative about it, thinking like, dude, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be devastated. But I also, at the beginning of those hunts, I feel like I start to talk myself into it, like, at the end of the day, I'm out here hunting and loving it. And if I put too much pressure on myself and I don't even enjoy this hunt, that's going to be the real loss. Yeah, I, I feel that. You know, my North Dakota tag, I had a terrifying roller coaster of emotions. When I drew, I thought I messed up my application because I, I was like, I I had to have applied for a cow tag. There's no way I could have drawn on my first year and then, you know, once that sunk in that it was legit, then I was like, this is amazing. This is one of the best units in America. You know, somebody shot out 437 in that unit. There's giant bulls. I mean, it's insane elk hunting. It does truly rival some of the best units in the West. And so I was just jacked out of my mind. You know, April through June, I was riding on cloud nine. You know, my workouts were going longer. I was feeling good. I was putting more effort into everything. I go out there in June to scout. I didn't find an elk track. I didn't find two droppings to squeeze together to play the world's violin. I I was like at all time long, like there's no elk. I don't get it. Like I didn't think it was going to be easy, but I, you know, I've hunted elk before. I know how to look for elk, you know, you know, find roadless areas, find some food, you know, and they're going to be there. Well, they weren't there. And so I came back and I was just in all kinds of negative thoughts and so i started reaching out to people and and then you're learning like oh this is this north dakota elk aren't the same as montana elk they don't care if there's a road because there's a road everywhere in the oil field there's roads all over the place so you know forget about that just just go where there's feed and i got a couple tips and then i started getting on elk and then right back up to the top you know oh my god there's giant bulls everywhere i was i was on a seven by eight that was probably in the 380 to 390 range Jeez. I, I took video of him and you know back up to right up the top and then i was like oh my gosh what if i don't find him again and sure enough i didn't find him again but yeah it was just a, a huge emotional roller coaster when you have a tag like that that i i'm glad you mentioned uh, it was so much different than hunting the West, you know, even the fact that there's roads all over the place. What has that been like? Because hunting elk in different states, a lot of people think it's like, oh man, there's a lot of the same strategies involved. You can go about it the same way. But I'm sure that it's different, not only going state to state, but also hunting them with your bow versus your rifle. What are like the differences in states that you've noticed or in seasons and how you go about actually trying to locate them and kill one? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
in North Dakota, it was um, pockets of elk. There wasn't elk everywhere. And it, it helped to know people that had done it before and know kind of where they were. And I reached out to biologists and, and, and anybody that had information. And I started piecing together the puzzle because it was different. You know, in Montana, what we've seen, we're always, I've archery hunted Montana four times and I've rifle hunted Montana once. And it's pretty standard. You know, you get into some black timber, you look for some feed in September. If you have a north slope, that's usually shaded more and it's got a little cooler temperature. So there's a good chance you'll find some activity there. And, you know, generally, I think every year we went to Montana, we were on elk on the first day just because you start to just piece together what you're looking for. Wyoming, um, pretty similar. You know, you're looking for the same types of stuff. You're looking for a ridge that, you know, has some timber, maybe some feet at the bottom in the valley. Um, if you got a table or a bench two-thirds of the way up the ridge, that's probably a good spot to start. Um, and then you're throwing bugles. That's a big thing. You know, when you're archery hunting, you have, all you got to do is be within a mile and you can throw some bugles. And if you get good air, you know, it's calm or you got, um, you know, the, a little bit of the wind in the right direction, they'll hear you a lot easier than you'll hear them. And so if they hear you and respond, they can be quite a ways away. And now you can start to really piece the picture together. When I went to Colorado with my rifle, I really got flipped upside down again because I was looking at the map thinking, okay, here's where I'm going to go. This is going to be where I think their elk are going to be. And then I got there and I looked straight up and I'm like, holy shit, I'm not going up that. <laughs> and so that one got me for a while. I found elk, but I couldn't get to them. I was by myself. It was above the alpine. I got two feet of snow on the first day and I just, I was post holing through the snow up at 12,000 12,500 feet. And I just, I was like, if I shoot one, I don't think I can get it off of here by myself. I don't have a sled. I, I don't have snowshoes. Um, I, I, I had to turn around and just walk away from those elk. And then a couple of days later, I actually ended up shooting an elk three quarters of the mile from the road. And so that was kind of strange as well. So I think you just have to be able to adapt to what you're seeing in front of you when you're there make as many plans as you can do as much research as you can that's going to set you up to be in a better spot but once you're in that better spot just react to what you're seeing and trust your gut is what i've kind of relied on um and it seemed to paid off so far like i said i've done one elk hunt where the group didn't bring anything home in those seven or eight years and other than that we've always brought elk home which is saying a lot i mean archery diy archery success rates i think are sub 10 percent and we're averaging about 20 to 25 percent as a group so that's pretty pretty promising yeah that's awesome i think i mean and once you once you start cooperating stories and like you're getting back to camp every day or you know at the end of the week and you're all going this is where we saw them this is where we saw them and you can start putting those things together as well like, did anybody see them low? Did anybody see them down in meadows or were they all up on these benches or were all, were they all in dark timber? Like when you guys can share that information every year, it definitely helps. I know we do that at elk camp and it's not like we sit to get, sit down and like take notes, but when you hear every mm -hmm. day at the end of the day where people were seeing elk, you're going, okay. So a lot of people are seeing him 45 minutes before sunset coming out in these high high elevation meadows you know they'll just pop out of nowhere and yep. um now 
it's the same type of deal. I know we're not archery hunting and I have yet to do that. I want to do it so bad, but rifle season, dude, we're, we're pulling, I don't know, four to eight elk every year out in our camp and like five bulls, maybe some mule deer, uh, just depending on what tags everybody has. And I mean, maybe that's not great in comparison to some other groups, but for me, dude, I am thrilled about it. Two for two on my first two years. Can't complain about that. Yeah, that's, that's really good odds. I don't think there's going to be a lot of people out there that are consistently beating those odds if they're not doing it full-time, yeah. whether they're, you know, full-time content creator or they're a guide. Um, you know, you got your, your people that are doing the one week a year crowd, that's, that's insanely good odds, um, good success rates. So yeah, it's funny that you mentioned like seeing elk cause archery, I've done more archery hunting than rifle hunting. I've only had three rifle tags and seven, six or seven archery tags. I am starting to lose count, but when we're archery hunting predominantly always hearing the elk first rather than seeing them. And on a rifle hunting, we're almost always seeing the elk first rather than hearing them. The one caveat is when I had a rifle take during the rut then i was actually I oh was my feeling, gosh oh and it was you know north dakota was open so you if you could hear them you could likely see them if you crossed a ridge and then you could likely shoot them and and that's what happened i bugled i heard him i had to cover about a half mile then i saw him and then you know how the rest of the story goes now he's in my living room <laughs> that that is unbelievable we've we've come across I want to say two times we've come across bugling bulls during second rifle season. I and heard a bugling bull in second rifle in Colorado as well that year. I was probably, were you in Colorado in 2020? Second rifle. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been. Yeah. I was that guy that shot like at four minutes before uh, closing light. Oh, nice. Dude, yeah. that's, I, I've, uh, I used a little bit of restraint one year and I had an opportunity similar to that. I'm sitting here watching three bulls at 200 yards and the sun's going down. It's cloudy. So it's even darker than it normally would be. And I just can't make out what bull is what as they're kind of leapfrogging each other in the cedars. And it, it drove me nuts. Luckily we went back there the next morning and got on them and, and I pulled one out. Um, but dude, the, Oh my gosh, man. I can't believe how close everything is right now. I'm getting super pumped and like daydreaming about dreaming about it. I keep catching myself like, all right, just be patient. I still have time. But like three weeks from now, I'm going to be in Utah trying to chase down mule deer with a bow. And after that, everything just kind of snowballs. All the seasons start opening up. Yeah, I'll be in Montana in five weeks, hopefully drawing my my bow back actually right about now i would be hope to be uh seeing camp in the headlights with a with a rear quarter on my back heck yeah what uh what all tags do you have this year i'm actually down a little bit this year so i have an elk tag in montana and i have my minnesota whitetail tags i'm getting married in january and i just knew that i would be putting a lot of vacation time towards that. And I, I have fixed vacation time cause I still do have my day job. And so made the conscious decision to not apply as for as many things I did try for my uh, North Dakota mule deer, North Dakota has some amazing mule deer hunting as well. And I had five points, 
and I didn't want to lose my points. I wanted to keep them rolling. So I said, Hey, I'll, I'll do this. And if I draw, I'll make it work somehow, some way, but I didn't draw. So I'm, I'm just doing the elk. I did put in though, this might be a secret tip for your listeners for Montana. We drew an elk tag and then I did sign up for, they have what they call a hunt roster. And the hunt roster is a list of hunters that are willing to come out and assist landowners with depredation. Um, so if a landowner has issues with elk on his property and they're causing damage, they can work with the game and fish to get approved for a depredation hunt. And then they have the game and fish provides a list of uh, hunters that, you know, will come out on a short notice and, and pretty much shoot a cow. Um, I think there's a couple bull opportunities, but mostly cows. And it's, it's more of a grocery getting adventure than a hunt for sure. But you know, my brother and I viewed it as, you know, archery, DIY archery, and especially just two of us, really low odds. You know, we're not getting that that camaraderie at camp. Where'd you see them? What was working for you? What wasn't working? You know, it's just us two. And yeah, we've hunted this unit last year, so we have a little confidence, but chances are we're not going to shoot two bulls. If we shoot one, I'd be super happy. And so by signing up for this hunt roster, it's just a second chance to, to fill your tag get your value back, you know, it's 850 bucks. So it's kind of an investment. And if you can go bring a cow home and get 200 pounds of meat for that, you know, that goes a long ways. And so that's what we did. And ironically, my brother texted me last week and said, Hey, go check your, you know, go check your random number. That's your list in line or that's your place in the line. And mine's 55. I'm pretty low. And so I logged in. Guess what number I got? 200. One. No way. I am first in line for my unit and my unit is actually a trophy unit. Um, obviously still we're shooting cows, but it it's way over objective. Like the objective is like X and they are reporting like 10 X populations. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm first in line for that. And so expect, I, but I could get called August 15th. That's when this whole depredation season opens, which would be a like real conundrum. Cause if you, if I say no, I go to the end of the line, which is at least 55. If I say yes, then I go shoot my elk out of some guy's pasture in August 15th. And I don't get to go out archery hunting. Well, my brother says I still have to come out archery hunting with him and be his caller, but you know, I don't get, so to this is a, this is basically a one or the other. Like if you get an animal in one season, you don't get to hunt it in the other. I think so. Certain units, you have the option to buy an additional antlerless tag, but not all of them. And I don't know if that's my unit. So yeah, it's kind of like if you get called before your planned hunt and you go, then you're done for your planned hunt. You could go on your planned hunt. And if you shoot one, maybe you could get that second you know, antlerless tag, but probably not. And then you, if you shoot one, you're done. If you don't shoot one, the whole thing is, you know, the whole reason we did this is because we're not expecting to shoot one on our planned hunt. And then come December when they are down at a lower elevation causing problems, that's when we could go and shoot one. Yeah. That would be tough, man. That'd be super tough to decide. I, I mean, I guess I'm kind of in a similar boat because I keep getting offers to come do archery hunts uh in colorado with people they're like dude you should totally come out with my group chase after some elk like we'll do our best to get you on a bull and i'm like but if i shoot a bull there then i can't shoot one during rifle and i know what kind of animals we're going to see during rifle because i'm yeah. hunting that unit that's and, a tough trade if you come yeah. out with us we'll try to get you on a bull versus the other group that's shooting four to five bulls a year <laughs> dude but i'm like i want that experience i want the 
bow in hand, like just losing my mind because you hear bugles coming through the woods and you're just waiting for something to step out at 40 yards. You know, like that's way different than seeing them at 1,200 getting into 500 and pulling the trigger. Well, here's an idea for you. You're going to be in Utah in a few weeks. Utah has a lot of over-the-counter archery units for spikes. So you can't shoot big bulls, but you can shoot a spike, and they have some monster bulls in some of those units. Like, they are trophy units. Um, Ryan Carter from DC Outfitters guides in a lot of those units, and he's, um, from my experience, one of the um, frontier guides on shooting 400-inch bulls. Jeez. Yeah, he's he's insane. He has. A, if anyone's listening and wants some great elk content, follow Ryan underscore DC Outfitters on Instagram. He posts a ton of trail camera pictures of some of the most beautiful bulls I've ever seen in my life. See, I've got I've got a couple buddies that do over the counter archery in Colorado, and it's really tempting, man. I what I'm kind of curious. You said it's like a spike only unit. Do they yes, just have that many? They just have that many elk that they're taking out spikes because I feel like that's the opposite direction that a lot of places go where you have to have three on one side or six inch brows or whatever. I think it's just a management strategy that they choose to employ. So a lot of like you're right, a lot of places you can't shoot a spike where we hunt in Montana, we can't shoot a spike. Um and I think that is to increase the opportunity of raghorns and satellites for hunters, right? So if you don't shoot a spike, they're almost guaranteed to get to the raghorn status. Um, and it's just trying to, they're targeting maybe that opportunity class. I okay. think what Utah's trying to do with a lot of those units is they're targeting high-end bulls. They're targeting mature age classes, eight-year-old plus, eight to 12-year-old bulls. Well, when you do that, the only way you can do that is to really significantly reduce your number of bull tags. And so then you you are successful in growing old mature elk, but you're very unsuccessful at giving the public opportunity to their resource, right? It's their elk, it's their public land. And so they're like, well, how do we bridge the gap? Well, we could let them shoot spikes. And if the spike makes it through, then he's almost guaranteed to get mature. I mean, obviously he can die from natural causes or wild yeah. things, but you know, he's not going to get killed as a, from a hunter as a raghorn. So maybe that's just their kind of their quasi- you know, stance on we're going to try to grow as old the bulls as we can yet give people opportunity to hunt elk in an over-the-counter fashion. Interesting. I've never, yeah, I guess I, I, I know there's units like that where it's like spike only, but I've never really thought about it. Yeah. It's hard though. Spikes don't bugle that I've seen. I've never seen a spike bugle. See, and that's where I'm like, well, then I'm missing out on what I want anyways. Like I want that moment where like I feel like I'm going to die from a heart attack because I hear a bugle so close and it's something that I can shoot. It it's was a very weird feeling it, I, it, to have an elk bugle within 40 yards is a very weird feeling in your chest. It makes your chest rattle. Yeah. I've, I've seen the videos and I've heard them bugle. I've just never heard them bugle that close. Well, you know the big I mean? bulls will bugle. So you'll be out there trying to find a spike and you're like, nope, 350, nope, 360, nope, 320. Oh, hey, they're out. Oh, nope, that's a raghorn. Um, and then you'll just have to weed through all these giant bulls to shoot your spike. So yeah, it'll be a no, great hunt. <laughs> no, no, I don't think I could. I don't think my heart could handle that. I would have serious PTSD from that where it's just like, 
I already have dreams where I'm out hunting and I keep getting opportunities at monster animals and like I can't find my ammo or my release doesn't work or like it's just the weirdest nature nightmares I've ever had. Uh, and if I actually experience that in real life where I'm encountering these monster animals and I can't shoot any of them, I don't know. I don't know that that's good for my mental health. You see, my outdoor nightmares is a little different. And I hope I never experience it because mine is I'll dream that a, a grizzly is charging me and I get my pistol out or my bear spray out. And no matter how hard I try, I can't pull the trigger. That's and it's just a reoccurring one that happens. What happens? Do you just get mauled in your dream? Usually it's like the at impact. I wake up. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the bear will be coming. I'm trying to squeeze like the crosshairs or the the, the sights are right between his eyes. And it, it's like I'm just squeezing as hard as I can. Like imagine like you're doing a max rep deadlift or a max weight deadlift and you're just like your hands are that tight and you're just trying to squeeze and he's getting closer and he's getting closer and you're starting to freak out. You're like, I know he's going to hit me. I got to shoot now. And, and it's just not working. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom. And you wake up. Dang. Sweating. I usually sweating, like terrified <laughs> to go back to sleep and like little, sure little pee in your bed. You know, no yeah. big deal. I've, I made a mistake the first elk hunt I went on. We were in grizzly country and I watched night of the grizzlies, which is a documentary. Amazing. About yeah, all the grizzlies up in uh, Glacier that were mauling people left and right back in like the 60s and 70s. That's what I watched the night before I went elk hunting up there. And I ever since I've had problems. <laughs> I wouldn't prepare my wife for any of it. I didn't tell her what we were going to be encountering. And when we encountered a female and two cubs on the trail to head up to our, like where we were going to set up a tent for the night, she i didn't know if i would still have a wife coming back down off that mountain to be honest but yeah that stuff i well now you know where the line is what's that well now you know where the line is yeah yeah i can get at least to that point so uh i feel like i'm in pretty good standing now um dude that's exciting man i'm excited to hear how your hunts go this year obviously it'll be great to connect with you again especially now that you're a lot closer to my hometown um we'll have to get together do some hunting this fall if you want to shoot over to wisconsin we'll just have to see what dates okay. i'm up there if we could go get out yeah. here i mean i didn't i didn't represent the property that i hunt very well with shed hunting because we ended up finding one tiny little shed and you were throwing up like crazy i was gonna so, say i didn't you i didn't represent myself very well as a shed hunter <laughs> i i you're like, dude, I swear, man, like I put on dozens of miles shed hunting like every weekend when I go out and he, I feel like we walked two miles at that point And you're just like, dude, I'm losing everything right now. And I'm like, what? And yeah. I look over and sure enough. But luckily, right after that happened, we found a shed. Yeah. Yeah. To put it in perspective, I had started shed hunting in January on snowshoes in four feet of snow in North Dakota. I did 20 miles in one weekend. It was 13 below. And I slept in my truck with my dog in a, in a sleeping bag, did not run the truck. Right. I wasn't using the heater, but like, that's my level of excitement and engagement on shed hunting. And then I go out with Dan, I make it about three steps and I'm like, dude, I'm not feeling so good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that trip was rough for me in a lot of different ways. Some property fell through that I was hoping to pick up in like one of the best whitetail counties in the world. And then obviously you got sick 
but I did find my first shed while actually shed hunting. So I guess I came away with one win. I would love to get you either up to the North Dakota properties that we shed hunt um, public land or either that, which is a longer haul or to South Dakota, the properties we shed hunt. That's a lot more community and a great lodge. And it's just a great place. It'd be a perfect place. If you still have your, your RV at that point of year, they do have hookups like full service hookups. Ooh, I like yeah. that. We will most likely have an RV at that point still. So we might have to make that happen. And on my way out West this year, I'm picking up a dog and then I'm going to have that dog trained for both waterfowl hunting and shed hunting. So you should, um, I assume it's a lab then if you're it is. it's okay. an English lab. Yep. Perfect. I love labs. My dog's a lab. He's amazing. I would, if I were you, I would put out some positive vibes about meeting uh, Jeremy Moore from uh, I think it's dog bone or bone dog dog bone outdoors. He does a lot of uh, content and he does podcast P a W Nice. Um, about dogs and he trains shed dogs he's got a lot of cool resources that's how i train my dog grizz um yeah he'd be probably a great guest to have um or just a person to talk to about that because he's probably one of the best people i've come across on on shed dog training um i i love that idea and i've gotten in so i have found one shed and it was just like a freak deal. Like I almost stepped on it, wasn't looking, wasn't even out there for that whatsoever. And I think it was like October, right? So it was like hmm. a year old or whatever. Um, and I found it, but the main property that I hunt, I never find sheds on it because the deer seem to spend basically all winter right across the road. And I'm like, dude, if I could freaking shed hunt this strip, I would find every match set of all yeah. the bucks that I have on camera all year long. Well, now I have an in for that property and it is an insane property, steep, thick timber hillside that drops down into a Creek bottom, more river bottom woods on the other side for about 20 to 30 yards. Then it gets into, uh, just tall grass field, bedding cover edge habitat. And then it goes straight into crop field or ag field. Ooh, and there you go. I, I know the deer are there because I watch them go in and out of it every day. Yeah. And I know that they hang out there because they never hang out on my property when it's time to drop their antlers. And so I'm hoping that this spring is the first year I can go in there and there's no telling how many sheds I'm going to find. How, um, you picking up your puppy at eight weeks, six weeks, picking up my puppy at eight weeks. And that is going to be at the end of this month. Yeah. So he's going to be. He's going to be close to 10 months old by the time you get to uh, eight to 10 months old by the time you get to shed season. He's probably going to be um, definitely big enough to go with. He probably won't have much technical training by then to know what he's yeah. doing, but just to bring him along with and just see his excitement. And, you know, I probably wouldn't say give you like too many hunt commands at that point. Just like bring him for a walk in the woods is what he should think he's doing. And if he stumbles across one, my gosh, is that a great training opportunity to like just give them all kinds of love and praise and then you have a you'll be on the road to having a shed dog dude i'm i'm excited so i probably won't get to take the dog out for waterfowl or for um for sheds at all this year because i think i'm dropping it off around christmas time 
and oh, sure. I'm having it trained for like six months. So I'll get right it back months, late month. spring, summer of next year. And then hopefully at that point, have a dog that's ready to rock. And I'm excited. I wish you could use, I, I wish that the West had better laws around shed hunting. They're great. Well, I say that Colorado, there's a couple laws that I'm not a fan of. And I want my dog to pick up a giant elk shed that I can't bring it back. And I don't think that's legal in Colorado. To shed hunt with dogs? On public. With dogs or just in general? Yeah, with dogs. Oh, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, I've never heard that you can't, but I'm not an expert. One thing you got to be careful about, Wesley's rattlesnakes with your dogs. Ooh, didn't think about that. Yeah, once it starts warming up a little bit, you got to be a little bit concerned about rattlesnakes. But other states, you can shed hunt with dogs and, and find elk antlers. and um, Yeah, a lot of their laws are about timing, which doesn't really apply because there's usually snow still when the oh yeah when they open up on may 1st usually they still have snow on may 1st so it's not that big of a deal are you how how do you navigate the whole shed hunting deal because i know you do it a ton are you not taking any vacation for that and you just do it on the weekends most of the time yeah okay um i took one day of vacation to go to the south dakota shed derby contest at Browns hunting ranch and i just love I love the ranch. I love the owner. I've been going for five or six years. I love the properties. It's, it's a little bit different. It's, you know, it's not as much hills or trees as Wisconsin. It's a lot more grassland valleys, but you find a lot of antlers. You can find some big antlers. Somebody found an 88 and a half inch shed this year out there. Oh I supported my myself. Gosh. Yeah. And, and the funny part was they're all like, Oh yeah, that's probably a 72, 75. And I'm like, that is not a 75 inch antler boys. Let me go get my tape. Um, yeah, it was a beautiful shed, tons of mass and tons of character, but there's some big deer out there. And so it's been a great time. I found 19 sheds one day out there with my dog. And so I just love going back. So I typically, and now it's, it's getting to be farther. It's like six, seven hours. And so I'm, if I'm going to go, I'm going to try to get three days in. So I'll take a day of vacation for that, but everything else. No, I don't take vacation for sometimes on a rare occasion. I don't burn all my days in the fall and my, my, uh, burn them or lose them days in February. So sometimes I'll burn a couple of days in February and just go out, but that's more so just getting rid of old days. Dude, I will be at that shed derby with you. I will. I was I was, I don't even know what happened this year, but I didn't make it and it bummed me out so bad. But unless like an act of God happens, I will be coming up there because every time you talk about it, I'm, I'm hooked now. I mean, I found one, like I found one. That's all it took. I found one and I almost stepped on it before I saw it. It was on top of this mat of pine needles. It was like the most plain sight aside from a neon light above it. Like I should have seen it from. 50 yards away and even that one when i found it i was so pumped and i was completely hooked on shed hunting hey i've stepped on a four-point mealy shed once hunting with my nephew and then he found it right behind me so no way yeah it happens i was to be fair i was more concerned about finding the meal deer he just wounded and we did find it but i was more concerned about that at the time and yeah. so he was like looking down and say hey you just stepped on a shed so yeah, no, that it, the South Dakota is a great farm. This year I found a shed out there. Ironically, this whitetail shed had a bigger 
pedicle than the five point elk shed I found last fall in Montana. Like if you put base to base, this whitetail shed had a bigger base than that elk shed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's that was a that was a good shed. There's some there's some boys at the tournament that I met from Iowa. They're actually from Dubuque area. They find his brother finds like 150 whitetail sheds a year. And he found a 90 inch five point shed in, in Iowa this spring. Just insane antler. And then him a and a 90 boys, inch five point. I think it was a five point. Yeah. Pretty clean. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's getting close to a 200 inch 10 when you start to add it all up. And then his brother. So that's his brother, the guy I met, and his sons find about 100 a year. So between the, the two brothers and the two kids, they're finding about 250 antlers a year. It's just insane. The people you meet. You know, that's unreal. I've got a connection now down in Arkansas and this guy's got like seven by eights eating out of his garden in his backyard. And he's like, dude, I go find their sheds every year. He's like, they hang out until the rut and then they drop down into the valley and it's all private land that I can't hunt. He's like, but if I could hunt them at other points in the year, dude, they, I mean, he's got pictures. It was the day before that I went up there. He's like, dude, I just took this picture yesterday. Check it out. And I look and there's like a half a dozen six by sixes or bigger in his backyard. And he's like, dude, you got to come down here, man. You got to come bear and deer hunt down here. And I'm like, I'm interested in those guys. And he's like, so am I haven't been able to put an arrow in one yet. That's insane. I would probably buy land for shed hunting faster than I would buy land for deer. hunting. Really? Like if they got a nice South facing slope with a good food source, I'd be way more interested in that than some like sanctuary swamp that, you know, you know, there's big bucks in there, but yeah, you're going to kill them. Probably not. I'll find <laughs> sheds on that south slope with that food, but you know, yeah, dude, that sounds, Oh man. I just want to get out, dude. I'm itching. It's, it's like so close. I've been shooting. I've been out glassing. I've been getting notifications. I'm surprised my phone hasn't blown up maybe because the storm's rolling through right now, but I got a couple cell cameras and so every night I just get picture after picture after picture of all my big bucks hanging out. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. You're a little ahead of me. I haven't even sighted my bow in yet. I just switched up my broadheads and my arrow setup, and I still have to sight my bow in. I'm going to shoot my bow tomorrow. Yeah. So I probably won't be cause I'm in Iowa and I didn't bring any hunting gear, but yeah, I just switched up to a 200 grain single bevel. Nice. I make zero changes on my bow every year. I am like the dude who it works, man. I'm not changing a single thing about it. Now, if I went out elk hunting, I would probably change some stuff up. Cause right now I'm shooting, I'm shooting mechanical broadheads, 125 grain. And I absolutely love them. They have destroyed every deer I've ever shot. No issues, no complaints at all. But I think for elk hunting, I'd probably want to switch something up. Yeah, if your elk hunt hinges on a broadhead, pick a broadhead that doesn't have hinges. Ooh, that's good. That'll that'll preach. Yeah, <laughs> put it on a t-shirt. Um, no, yeah, mechanical broadheads just lose a little bit of their momentum when they open, and the number one factor for losing elk is not getting passed throughs, not putting two holes in them. So you just want to make sure you get two holes in them. They'll all kill it if you put it in the right spot. You just want to make sure that arrow gets all the way through. Yeah. Well, dude, I appreciate you hopping on, man. I always love chatting and congrats on the new podcast. I'm excited to follow along, hear what's going on 
this fall as you get back from your trip see what you're see what you're bringing back in your truck dude i'm excited we got to start like a text chain of all of the uh, everyone and just so we can see cool pictures so like when i have a bad fall this i'm sure then i can at least like live vicariously through you guys see all the cool stuff you guys are bringing home and if for some miracle i do have a good fall and share the love man i like that idea i feel like that would be fun the only problem is every big group of guys that do a text chain it just turns into meme wars between one another and there's things that you can't unsee when you get into that type of thing yeah you'd have to like make the rules like it has to have an antler rack yeah you know people are going to get creative though i mean it's still entertaining either way i almost said entertaining whoa that would have been a good uh that's a good t-shirt too like i wasn't even trying my my body took over and wanted to say that on zone so uh dude thanks again man good luck keep me posted on how it goes will do good luck yourself And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I always enjoy talking to Brian, and I think I'm going to see him actually this weekend. I'm going to be cruising up to Milwaukee first. I've got an event there, the 2% for Conservation Day with Half Rack. Really excited. Going to be doing some live podcasting at it. So if you're in the Milwaukee area, you're going to be hearing this like four days before this event happens. But in the greater Milwaukee area, we're going to be getting together hanging out, doing some live podcasting, and I hope to see you there. So go check out halfrack.com, see more details about the event. Um, but then from there, I'm cruising up to see family around Eau Claire, and then we're heading out to Missoula, Montana to pick up a new pup, and then down for my first Western hunt of the year in Utah. Lots to come. Hopefully you guys stay tuned. Stick around to see how all of these Western hunts pan out for me and for my fellow guests and hunters. So until next time, get out there and chase a new adventure.